Hey guys, it's another power to the people here on Radio Phoenix, downtown Phoenix, Phoenix Center for the Arts. And today we've got a fantastic show here about a real neat play over at Tempe Center for the Arts called Dutchman. We have the director here. We have um, one of the principals. The director is Ralph Remington in our studio right now. We also have Shay Kennedy Leonard, one of the principal actors in the play who pays uh, Lula, if I have that correct, if I'm pronouncing that correct. And then uh, in just a little bit, he's running a little late, we're going to have, you guys know, Calvin, one of our programmers, longtime volunteers at Radio Phoenix. He plays the role. The other lead is Clay. And um, so hopefully he'll be here in a little bit. We also have in our studio uh, Kelly Taylor, who is the Director of Communications and Marketing. If I, do I have that correct? Yeah, she's the one who I've been coordinating this whole thing with. So I got to really thank her for helping to set this up, set up this interview. Uh, the play is running from October 4th to 19th, again, over at Tempe Center for the Arts. And um, it's a, a play by, written by a gentleman who's no longer with us, passed away, I think, about five years ago. Initially, his name was Leroy Jones, slash, um, changed his name to Amiri Baraka, embraced the Muslim faith. Dutchman is a 1960s drama about a white woman and a young black man on a New York subway train who match wits in a sexualized game of cat and mouse that leads them headlong into a violent conclusion. The searing confrontation amplifies the dimensions of racial conflict in America. Violent crime kind of explodes in the 60s all the way through to like about the early 90s. Um, and so it's just, you know, involves a lot of topics that we talk about all the time on our show, Power to the People. Um, let's start with you, um, uh, Shay. Uh, tell us just a little bit about your background in theater and kind of what you really see is why this play is important. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate that. And thank you for um, bringing us to the show with Dutchman because I think it's a great opportunity to um, let people know about uh, not only what Tempe Center for the Arts is doing, but just arts in general and helping to widen the audience of theater goers. Um, I have been an actor for over 20 years. I uh, started out in Los Angeles. i uh, did some theater and acting there, pounded the pavement and tried to break into film and TV and uh, wet my feet in New York for some time. I did a few seasons with the Williamstown Theater Festival, which is up in the Berkshires in Massachusetts. It was a great opportunity up there. It was a great few years to uh, get connected um, to a lot of actors who are in the, uh, the Broadway arena in New York. And uh, I moved, spent some time back in L.A. later on after that, and then I sort of I wound up settling down here. I met the man I would marry. And Metro Phoenix, you're talking about. Yes, Metro Phoenix. And, uh, you know, I was sort of, I, in some way, thought I was leaving my world behind and then went, there's theater everywhere. Uh, but then I went and uh, started a family, so it really got put on the back burner. I didn't wind up acting for several years. And then slowly the last couple of years have been, um, get, getting uh, acquainted with um, the theater world in in Phoenix, and had a great opportunity last year to to do a play at Tempe Center for the Arts um, called The Revolutionists, and that is what introduced me, uh, of course, to Ralph, who um, was a producer on that show, and it was an amazing experience, and it's a gorgeous venue. If you've, uh, if anyone has never been to Tempe Center for the Arts, it is one of, I, I mean, arguably, it's the most beautiful 
uh, venue in the city. Yeah, we were talking off a mic earlier about uh, one of our long-term volunteers and programmers, Walt Richardson, who's my world of music, uh, is very much engaged with Tempe Center for the Arts and all. So, uh, yeah, we, we did some things. Radio Phoenix did some things out there. We tabled and got involved in some productions, you know, to, to help publicize Radio Phoenix. But uh, go ahead and, and let me know a little bit about, of course, we're at, we got Ralph here, the director, uh, as well. We'll have him get into this, too. But tell us a little bit why this play is important to people. Well, uh, it's a play that was written in 1964. And uh, I just, it's still very relevant today. And um, it's a little alarming that it's still that relevant. Um, it has a lot to do with uh, race and racial tensions, um, the way people treat one another. And I think in our current political climate, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, you don't need me to necessarily say that things are sort of, you know, sort of upside down on their head. But um, it's, I think, to continue to expand the conversation this is an important play. People don't talk about race in particular um, very often. And I mean, in terms of, you know, white people and black people, we don't really talk about it. It's uncomfortable. And I think it's high time that people start to get a little bit more comfortable with it. In doing so, I think more headway can be made. Um, and I think there's some important things to be said about race. Um, there are there are white people, there are black people in the world, there are people of all different um, colored skin, but there really is one human race, and that's it. And we all bleed the same color. Um, I think kindness is a lot more important than anything else. I thought as a little kid, seeing the way things were, were changing with this civil rights revolution going on in the mid-60s, that by today, 2019, I think we'd be much further along. But you're right. You hit on it that, yeah, we still have these tremendous problems that have not been rectified. I thought we'd be much further along by now. But go ahead, Ralph, and give us your perspective. And I think uh, um, it's sad, as Shay was saying, it's, you know, it's just sad that we that this play is so relevant that we have to still put put it on <laughs> to remind people. Uh, for that reason, because we still haven't dealt with white supremacy, whiteness, because uh, I won't call it race, I call it whiteness. You know, that's the problem. And, um, and it's that uh, white supremacy in the United States of America has destroyed people's lives, including white people. And... Uh, and I think this play in and of itself uh, uh, is indicative of the fact that we can still watch it today. And when it was written in 1964, that was a year after I was born. Mm. So um, that it's still relevant, you know, 55 years later. Uh, so it's a classic in that sense. It comes out of the black arts movement. Uh, it's a play that uh, has been done multitudes of times um, uh, uh, since its writing, and um, and I'm I'm familiar with the family as well. I, I I've s spoken and had conversation with Mary Baraka several times over the years. Uh, I know uh, his daughters Kelly and Lisa Jones, um, and so uh, th this play means a lot to me. Howard University. I'm a Howard University graduate. Uh, it was the, one of the first uh, monologues I ever did, the first monologue I ever did. 
So, and I performed this play once as an actor, produced it at Pillsbury House Theater that I founded in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I directed it also uh, 17 years ago at the Source Theater. Pillsbury was 98. Uh, 17 years ago, 2002, was at the Source Theater in D.C. And now I'm revisiting it uh, as a 56-year-old 17 years later, which is a whole different experience. The description of the play has the dynamics of, and the sexual overtones. Um, mm-hmm. What is it that you think is really being said? Or, or rather, better question is, what do you want the audience to take out of mm. uh, when they go to see the play I, I think uh, I think that the the play really Baraka really gets at uh, sexual racial lines of demarcation and uh, a lot of racism in the way that it has been enacted uh, for the beginning of our time in this country as African Americans uh, was really a white male fear over, over black male sexuality. And um, so hence the, the hundreds, and thousands of, uh, hundreds and thousands of lynchings uh, for transgressions against white women. Castration. Uh, yeah, castration, mutilation. I mean, all of this stuff. Uh, who, who of us as black men uh, hasn't heard of Emmett Till? When you grow up, that's what your that's, yeah, parents tell you, right? It's one of the first, one of the first. Uh, stories, right? Yeah. And... Um, and it's uh, and it's so true uh, that and it's and overall to speak of white male supremacy, it's about kind of white male control over white women's wombs. I mean, that's really what it what it's about. When I read the description, the first thing that I thought about was the movie Get Out. Mm-hmm, yeah, um, <laughs> because <laughs> so you guys know what I'm talking about. Yep. The um, the there's a scene in Get Out nearing the climax yeah. of the film where the so it's the main character and his girlfriend um, but his girlfriend and the parents kind of have mm-hmm. this dynamic going on to where she catches men for the family mm-hmm. and actually for their suburban neighborhood <laughs> mm-hmm. and they proceed to I don't know what the, the better word would be for it without like spoiling the movie for those who haven't seen it. Like Glenn has still hasn't seen it, but oh wow, uh, <laughs> it's on my list. I gotta put it on my list <laughs> tonight. <laughs> but the it, the the film is it's extremely creepy in the sense that it, it takes it to the it takes the the the, the element of the destruction of black males mm-hmm. to the extreme but it, it's creepy in that sense and so like when I read the description of the play that's the that's the immediate thought that mm-hmm. I got I was like oh man that, that sounds like it might be like get out yeah so, yeah it's, a, it's it's funny you picked that up uh, and great in a way because uh, one of the taglines we thought about this week is, is get out on the train so mm-hmm. that's uh, <laughs> that's basically <laughs> for a 21st century audience <laughs> if you want to know what it's about it's get out on a train <laughs> Was uh, d- did Mr. Baraka write this kind of around a actual incident, or is it just something that he kind of you know created in order to tell a story about these you know relations of sex and race and violence and all that? I think he created an allegory out of several an amalgamation of several events in his life. Okay. Uh, at the time, uh, he was married to Hetty Jones, uh, uh, his uh, first wife. Uh, he. I uh, had some uh, also also some uh, extramarital affairs going on. Uh, I had a, a child um, 
with another woman, uh, another white woman. He was hanging out with um, uh, uh, Ginsburg and Kerouac. He was a part of the whole beat poet scene. Uh, so he was living in a village. So he was living that whole kind of uh, multi-culti boho kind of life. You know, he's bohemian. And... Um, and uh, uh, just a very uh, a life mired in art and poetry and jazz. Uh, that's what it, he was living, and came to find that he thought that this was hypocritical. He thought that uh, a lot of things these guys talked about uh, was like too heady and wasn't really about the real stuff that was going on. The real stuff that was going on that was affecting his life uh, was uh, racism and and you know white supremacy in America. Do you think that, since we're on this topic of of race, do you think that even though on the surface some things look like it's getting better, so Mm -hmm. you see more and more... uh, I grew up in an era where there was interracial relationships, Mm -hmm. but it was done behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. You didn't bring it outside Mm -hmm. because that could get you lynched. Mm -hmm. But... So you're fast not forward. That, you're not that old, Travis. I'm I'm not that old. You're, but not, I, you're but in your forties. I'm not so. that old, I but you. I do remember. Matter of fact, one of my I've never told this story ever hmm. before, but one of my first girlfriends was white, mm-hmm. and so we had to sneak around in mm-hmm. in school. So we had an on again, off again relationship for many years, um, and we would. I was on the football team. She was a cheerleader, mm-hmm. but nobody knew that <laughs> we were kind of small town, North Carolina, yeah, small town mm-hmm. in small town, North Carolina. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> during the seventies, and so yeah. one day we got caught, mm-hmm. and we, we were in the bathroom. We were, matter of fact, we were in the girls' bathroom, and the janitor caught us. And so he, my mother worked at the school, mm-hmm. and her mother worked at the school. So he immediately told her mother mm. and we got into so much trouble yeah it was on yeah it was on um we had to stop seeing each other wow. and things of that nature so um in in the time period where relationships seem to be you see them more in the open mm-hmm. are there any underlining psychological elements that are being alluded to in the play yeah, either of you guys Under, underlying sh- psychological elements mm-hmm. uh, I, I I think uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm correct to what you're asking um, I, the the sad part about it is like so I live in Tempe and uh, and I you know I, I, my wife is white I, I go around and uh, I don't get bothered in most places I go but I also know where to go in Arizona Right. Right. Um, right. And so I live this life. You know, I live this life. Um, and uh, I'm from West Philly. Uh, so I know this, the same kind of thing was going on there and in, 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 that you experienced when I was growing up. Um, I had uh, ri- all different races of uh, girlfriends throughout my whole life. Latin, Latinx, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Asian, uh, certainly white. And... Um, but just even though I live in Tempe, even though every day I don't face the kind of stuff that um, one might face in Jim Crow South, uh, there was a person that was just uh, about a year ago was um, came out of a place with a white woman and the guys tried to shoot him, run him down hmm. uh, in Tempe, Chandler, that area right there. Hmm. Um, it, it's 
it's still it happens. I mean, and if I go to certain places in Arizona, I know that I won't be welcome. <laughs> you know, I know that that situation won't be welcome. So the underlying, I think what sexual racism has done is that it has made us a pathological country. And whiteness in general has made us pathological and, and a nation of neurotics. And he talks about it in the play, a whole people of neurotics struggling to keep from being sane. All right, folks, um, we're going to be right back with a brief break. Again, this is uh, Glenn Miller with Chris Felton at Power to the People on Radio Phoenix. One way you can support Radio Phoenix is by becoming one of our members. For as little as $35 per year, members receive discounts, savings, and other benefits provided by our membership program partners. And don't forget, the membership fee is tax deductible. For more information or to sign up, call 480-829-5746 or go online to RadioPhoenix.org. Click on the support tab at the top and then become a member on the drop-down menu. We thank you for your generous support of Community Radio. Well, is my I can see this in my own family. My grandfather was born about 1898. He passed away in 79. And for a man of his who grew up in small town West Texas, relatively, he was quite progressive. You know, thought a lot about Martin Luther King, and and he said, you know, we can't discriminate against people. But yeah, they they, they called it miscegenation. Mm-hmm. Of course, that was the that was mm-hmm. something that was a wall that right. he wasn't ready to accept. Right. And, uh, of course, it was, I think, just about 1962 was the Supreme Court decision Mm -hmm. approximately there. And there was a movie about that, Mm -hmm. about a a white man and a black woman and their relationship. And they had to take it to the courts. Mm -hmm. And they got attorneys, and they won in the U.S. Supreme Court. And that abolished all of these miscegenation laws that were throughout many states, Mm -hmm. especially in the South. I think I saw that. That's that's a fairly recent movie, isn't it? Fairly recent, Loving. a few years ago. Yeah. I can't remember forget, the name of it. I forget the name of it, but yeah, yeah I do too. So. But anyhow, uh, yeah, has uh, Hattie Hattie Mae was in it, or um, I don't know. It was it was it was uh, the, about the Loving case. Yeah. Loving, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, it. Yeah. That's that's yeah. the case. Yeah. I remember. Yeah, the, that's what uh, you know because so this is in our lifetime that that interracial relationships were against the law. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's, I mean against the law. My oh. lifetime. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's crazy. I would think, maybe sort of to your question here, um, I feel like this play makes me think about the old saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And Mm -hmm. what struck me most about this play, I think the first time I read it, was absolutely how off the wall this woman was. Um, But then I also was shocked by what I felt was like this lack of 
humanity. And I feel like in the last several years, look, it's not like racism went away, but suddenly it's like it's become okay to say things that you wouldn't have otherwise said before. Um, I feel like it's there's a people are just sort of coming out of the woodwork and acting like it's okay to um, behave in a way where we've just lost all sense of decorum Mm -hmm. and how to appropriately treat one another. See, I, I'm, I have mixed feelings about the whole coming out of the woodwork and Mm -hmm. saying certain things. Mm -hmm. I I grew up in a place where, and I experienced uh, racism early on um, and I went to a predominantly white school and so I'm I'm half native half black mm-hmm. but I was never I was never black enough for the black kids mm-hmm. and was never <laughs> white enough for the white kids mm-hmm. but at least I was comfortable with people saying well not then but now I'm comfortable enough with people saying certain things so at least I know where you're coming from yeah. as opposed to just being in my face and smiling mm. and you're not open about how you really feel. Mm-hmm. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I guess in a, in a sense, this time that we're in, mm-hmm. it forces things to the surface. Yeah. And it kind of forces us to, to deal with it. Okay, well, races are, or, or what we perceive as race is a tough subject. We don't really want to deal with it, mm-hmm. um, but we need to deal with it yes. if we're ever going to really heal from it. Mm-hmm. So, I, I was just going to say, I think uh, we've talked about this before on the shows. We get into these issues all the time, Chris and I, is that basically two people, Barack Obama and Donald Trump, have mm-hmm. taught us a lot about America. A lot of people maybe. 10, 20 years before Barack Obama was elected in no way, we never would have thought a black person could be elected president of the United States, especially with a foreign name like Barack Hussein Obama. And, um, you know, and, and then eight years later, Donald Trump is elected. And I think part of his election was a reaction to things that a lot of people, well, things that made them, made them uncomfortable. But in both cases, it told us that, you know, we've made progress, but also for someone like Donald Trump, to get elected and for him to be almost an even bet to get reelected next year with all the things that he has said. I think the man's a white supremacist. I mean, there's just a whole collection of comments. And, and I don't know what you get. You don't need to get deep into politics here. But anyhow, I think that's, you know, uh, it, we're learning about America because he's there. It's exposed, kind of like what Chris was saying, it's exposing the reality out there that yeah. has been buried underneath stuff. And now the cover term is political correctness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what they would use. And, and I think it's a cover to say, I'll, I'll, you know, I'm going to say whatever I want. Go ahead, Ralph. We have children in cages. Just think about that. Yeah. There are children in cages in America right now, right here, not far from here, far from where we're sitting right now. Yeah, right. So children in cages and because of who they are. And I think what this play in it, at its crux speaks about is who is American and what does it mean to be America, uh, to be American, and and who has a patent on being American? Does anyone have a patent on that? And if not, then what is it and what created it and who are we at that moment and at this moment? And 
uh, to that point, and even I, I, I look at it like, who are we as human beings? I feel like there's just there's such a sense of loss that there's people can be so mired in these beliefs and just stay so um, centered and hold on so strong to these beliefs as an identity without even realizing that that's what they're doing and hurling hatred toward other people for no other reason but just to do so and I don't and I even, don't even to the that. point to where you come down with scientific mm-hmm. <laughs> or pseudoscientific, pseudoscientific right. explanations mm-hmm. for your belief system. Mm-hmm. Like that's that, supremacy. Yeah, that's deep, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's deep. Yeah, I mean, that's deep. what supremacy is. And, then, and, and the language that people are using right now is, I mean, when, I've never heard the term white supremacy so much in this, in then during this administration, except from people that are firmly ensconced on the left, you know, and but to hear it on TV every night. But I think they're using it in the wrong way, because white supremacy is the system. You know, the system is white supremacy. So therefore, people that are acting or benefit from the system are by nature white supremacists. Are white supremacists? White supremacists. The white supremacists that they've identified are the KKK and neo Nazis. Those aren't white supremacists. Those are terrorists. Yeah. Those are white terrorists that use white supremacy as an organizing principle. That's a whole different thing. Re- yeah, right? real white supremacy yeah. is is uh, kind of covert. It's covert. Yeah, right. Subtle and participative, and that's why if people don't date. Uh, uh, black people, if white folks don't date black people or Asian people or Native people or Latinx people, and why and why they're ensconced in living in segregation is as a result of white supremacy, you know. And white people live in segregation. Uh, black folks don't because the only way for black folks, the black folks that do live in segregation, are usually. Uh, beat down by the system and not allowed to get outside of of, of the oppressive environments that they've been been, been well historic, historically into. like if that has happened so like with Black Wall Street right it's it, there's usually uh, catastrophic yes. consequences yes catastrophic that. consequences because mm-hmm. if you the only way to in this system the only way to uh, move ahead economically is to have facility with white people. And that in and of itself speaks to supremacy. You know, and that you have to have facility with white people. It doesn't work the other way. They can have success all their lives, live in segregation, and never have to have facility with African Americans or any people of color.